the sinner found a friend, not to the powerful, but to the poor he came, and humble, hungry hearts were satisfied again. What joy! scourged upon his back and hammered through his feet. The innocent is cursed, the guilty are released. The punishment of God on God has brought me peace. What joy shame will be removed, your joy will be complete. Come crucify your pride and enter as a child. For those who bow down low, he'll lift up to If you have your Bible, join me in Matthew 15. We will be in Matthew 15 this morning. The wrath of God on God. What a powerful phrase that was there in Abigail's song this morning. As we come to Matthew 15, we have been looking at hard sayings of Jesus. And we have been confronted with a simple truth. If the sayings of Jesus that you see in Scripture... If they never offend you in that they never call you to a place where you go, wait, 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 I'm I'm not sure I I agree with that. I'm not sure I understand that. Then what has happened is you're not following Jesus. You're following a God made after your own mind and your own image. So you have made God yourself into your view. Because when you look at what Jesus said in Scripture, there are times that what Jesus says and the way that you think Do not add up. Matthew 15, let's look in verse 12. Now we're going to be going back to get the rest of the details. But verse 12, then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? 
Now, we'll go back to verse 1 and kind of get the context here. But this verse right here helps us to understand where we're coming from. Lord, didn't you know that the, the Pharisees, they heard what you said and they were offended by what you said? For you and I, if you have grown up around church, if you've grown up around the Bible, you know a little bit about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious leaders in their day. They were extremely biblically knowledgeable. Now, at the point of this writing, the New Testament is not written, so their knowledge was in the Old Testament. And when we say extremely knowledgeable, knowledgeable to a level that we would be remiss to think that we were anywhere close to them. Okay, So they would memorize the first five books of the Bible. And for you and I to think of memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we just yawn at the thought of it. Okay, So, so to, to have that type of memorization of those passages, we look at it and go, oh my, why would anyone ever memorize the book of Leviticus? So, so we look at them and we recognize there was a drive to have Bible knowledge that Pharisees possessed that would exceed the average American believer by a great distance. So though we look at them because we know more about them in their regard to Christ, we look down on them, that would not have been the way they were seen in that day. Even verse 12 helps us to understand that the disciples, the followers of Jesus themselves, looked at the Pharisees, and though they had recognized, even at this point, that there were some issues between the Pharisees and Christ, there was still a respect for the position that they held because of their desire and their knowledge of God. So when we start with the Pharisees, we recognize that these were the religiously prominent individuals of their day. For you and I, this would be hard for us to put our hands around in our day. The reason it's hard for us today is because in our country and in our culture, there is such a massive diversity of church systems and beliefs. So that if you are in the, the Catholic church, you would look to the Pope, you would look to cardinals, to bishops, and you would have a reverence and an awe for those positions. If you were in a Greek Orthodox church, you would look to certain people in those churches and, and have respect for them. As independent Baptists, we tend to focus on being independent, so we don't look towards much of anybody. You, you know, and, and so we don't have as much of that, though we would recognize that there are certain people. In the day and age of the internet, and with all of the preaching that's out there, there would be people who come to your mind that are television preachers. Now, I'm not talking televangelists, touch the screen, you'll be healed types. I I'm talking of good people who preach Bible truth, and they do it on TV, and, and they would have a name that you would look up to. But that diversity would be scattered throughout the country. So some would look towards the Pope, some would look at like a David Jeremiah in a particular way, some would look at some other individuals, and there's kind of a spread nature. In Jewish culture, that wasn't the case. Everyone looked towards the temple, and in looking towards the temple, you looked at the high priest, and then coming down from that, you looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so there was a reverence to that position. ...that the entire culture held. Let's go now to verse 1. Then came 
to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying... So these people that were from the temple area come to the Lord. Why did the disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? Now that's, that's going to be our key phrase there. For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now obviously they didn't have COVID-19 or they would have known to wash their hands. All right, But verse 3. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? So we have a tradition... Your disciples transgress our tradition. And God returns with a question. Why do your, transi- or your traditions transgress the commandments of God that you memorized in the first five books of the Bible? Multiple times. Come back to the passage. I've lost my place. Forgive me. Okay, sorry. Verse 4. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother... And he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your traditions. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people... Draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth the man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth the man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou? that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. Ooh, that's a powerful phrase. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto this his parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth into the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth cometh forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defiles not a man. So all that's transpiring here is multiple things. There were these steeped traditions that the Jews had. One of which was, if an individual went to their parents and declared freedom from the rule of their parents, then any profit that the parents got from the child was now a gift. It was almost as if they declared their independence and they were no longer under the authority of their parents. And if they went and made this public declaration that now, hey, I'm no longer under your authority. The parents couldn't have rule over them. Now, some of our teenagers are going, man, I like this. Can we do this nowadays? But the Lord looked at it and said, but that's not the commandment. My commandment was simple, that you're to honor your father and mother. That's your responsibility. And yet you're looking at them and you're saying, well, we have this tradition now, and this tradition supersedes that authority. The Lord goes, no, no, no. You're worried about a tradition of washing your hands before you eat, making someone unclean. 
when you are breaking a commandment that I gave with promise, this is the first commandment with promise, that your days may be long, you're breaking one of my commandments that was written in stone, literally, and you're taking this tradition and you're upset at me because of this tradition when you're openly breaking one of my commandments. Now, we look at that and we look at that and go, well, yeah, man, shame on them. Let's give a little mercy for a second. Why did they hold so true to this tradition? Because someone had told them they should hold true to that tradition. This tradition didn't start with these Pharisees. This tradition went back years and years. And so the tradition that they're holding to was ingrained into their religious system. Look, we have to recognize there are religious traditions that can keep us from God. It's easy to see in religions that are not ours, traditions that have come into that religion, that have taken scripture out of context, and have created a tradition that now, when they look at it, they see it as part of the biblical truth for their life. I'll give you a couple examples outside of our realm. Right In the Catholic Church, if you're going to go and deal with your sins, you have to go into a confessional. So you go into a small booth, there's someone, a priest on the other side in the small booth, there's a little door that opens up with a screen so they can't see you well, and you tell them what you have done wrong, and then there is the sentencing that occurs. And the sentencing may be, and some of you may have a Catholic background and understand this better than I do. There would be some Hail Marys and rosaries. So the little beads, and you have to go through, and you hold each bead, and you do the little prayer that goes along with each bead. And so you may have to do it a certain number of times to pay penance as you have confessed the sins that you have done to get absolution or forgiveness from the priest. Now we look at that, and we come to Scripture, and Scripture teaches us that our high priest is God, that we confess our sins to God directly and that we get forgiveness from God directly. Our forgiveness is in the blood of Christ. It is not in any beads or any penance that must be done. To you and I, we see the tradition of the confessional as completely outside of biblical authority. To a Catholic, they see it as essential to biblical authority. So you go, well, how do they get there? Because there are traditions that get into religions. There are parts of the country or world where there are, at the top of large mountains, there would be castles, not castles, cathedrals or, or church buildings that have been set up. And to get true penance for your sins, what is required of you is to start at the bottom step of the mountain and to crawl on your knees all the way up the steps to that area at the top as you go into that church-type building and you go in there to confess your sins. But because you have crawled up on your knees, there is now forgiveness for those sins. And we look at that and go, seriously? And as you traverse those steps and you come up, you can begin to see more and more blood-stained marks on those steps as people have crawled to get forgiveness for their sins. 
This was not hundreds of years ago. This is today. There are traditions that creep into religion. And those traditions are not biblical. And they actually keep people from God. Because someone comes to that and they go, if this is what I have to do to get forgiveness, I'm not doing it. And so now they push God away in their life because they don't want what the tradition has taught them. Now here's where this gets to be something we have to recognize and be wary of. Because we all tend towards tradition. It is our nature to tend towards tradition. And if you don't think that's true, just think about holidays in your house. We all have little traditions, and not all of them are holidays, that we tend to. Now, there are some of you in here that are healthy, and so forgive me for a minute, all right? I love a good hot dog. Um, and when I say a good hot dog, I do mean a good hot dog. A boiled hot dog should just about be a capital offense in my world, okay? So just, just know I hate a boiled hot dog. But you grill a hot dog, and when you grill a hot dog, what do you do to the hot dog before you grill it? Anybody? See, all of you don't get this. You cut a slit in the hot dog before you grill it. Because when you cut the slit in the hot dog and you put it on the grill, as it expands, the slit opens up, the hot dog gets warm inside, and then when you put it on your bun, you have a perfect spot for a line of ketchup to go right in the crack in the hot dog. You guys don't do this? Yeah, Kara looked at me the same way. Somebody said I will now. Good, good. Praise the Lord for that. No, Kara looks at me the same way. Always, I thought you cut a slit in hot dogs. I thought everybody did it. It's a simple tradition that made its way into a hot dog. But you come to your house. And at Christmas time, at Thanksgiving, you have traditions of what you eat and what you cook. How many of you eat stuffing at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Let me see your hands. You bunch of Yankees. Put your hands down. Okay. We eat dressing in my house. All right. We don't eat stuffing. Okay. Thank you. All right. We eat dressing. We don't eat stuffing. Um, ours does not come in a box. You, you make cornbread. You, you crumble up the cornbread. You make the chicken. And, and when I say this, I mean, my mom does. Okay. I don't do this. All right. And you make the dressing. And it takes forever. And it's great. It's a tradition. We tend towards tradition. You don't think so? You probably got ready in the exact same sequence this morning as you got ready last Sunday morning. We tend towards it. If there is tradition and religion that keeps people from God, and we tend towards tradition, then we have to be honest and recognize sometimes our religious traditions keep us from God. The point in this passage is the Lord's looking at the Pharisees who were, forgive me, it's not true, but it's kind of true. They were from a worldly point of view, godly people. And yet they had traditions that were keeping them from God. And there are plenty of Christians who have trusted in Christ, who are on their way to heaven, who love God, who have traditions that are keeping them from God. I believe in this so strongly 
that I almost become anti-tradition in the church just because of it. Look, I can keep cutting a slit in a hot dog. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't ruin anything. But there are things in church life that become sacred cows. And they become a tradition that we lift up because it's what we have done. And yet the tradition is keeping us from. And, And look, we've talked about this before in the past. My point is not that there's any one thing, and I'm going to be honest, the tradition that may be keeping you from God may be a tradition that helps get me to God. It is not the act that is important. It's the fact that I recognize that I can be doing something out of tradition instead of doing something for God. One of the reasons we seek to learn new songs is because I believe that God has gifted people in every generation to write music and that it is not just confined to 200 years before I was alive. And so I believe that there are songs being written today by good godly people that are good godly songs. And I want it to be that we learn. It doesn't mean that I think the songs from 200 years ago are bad. And it doesn't mean that I think we shouldn't sing the songs. from. And there are people who take that point of view and it's, it's equally wrong. But it's that I want it to be that we take the value of the song and we place the value on what's right, not on the tradition. So I I joke with Pastor Jeff all the time. Hey, how long have we been doing that children's program? It's time to change it. it. And it's not because I don't love the program we're doing. It's because after about two, three years, it starts becoming sacred. And so it's time to go. How many of you did a particular children's program when you were a child and you still to this day think it's the best children's program that ever existed? Come on, be honest, any of you? Yeah, I've got a couple over here. So yes, it's because that's what I did as a child. So it's got to work for this generation. Look, our tradition can get us in trouble. So what we have to do is we have to examine our tradition. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. You've heard the phrase, you know it to be true. But the Lord says, look, it's not what you eat with unwashed hands that's defiling you. They're making this a big deal. Washing your hands before you eat is a good thing. But they're making this the tradition because they believe it's what's defiling you when it's not. It's what's in your heart that's defiling you. It is not the tradition that is going to make you right with God. It is your heart that is going to make you right with God. Christ declares the Pharisees, these religious leaders, he declares them ye hypocrites. A hypocrite or a hypocrisy is when an outward action doesn't match an inward belief. So they wanted their hands clean. So they would not eat something that would defile them. That was an outward action. But the problem is their hearts were already defiled because they said the commandment of God, it's not important. We'll make our own tradition that's better for us. And we'll overrule the commandment of God with our tradition and make it better for us. So their heart was the problem. And the hypocrisy was that they were saying, look, we don't want anything that's going to defile us. The Lord's saying, but you're already defiled. Traditions can be extremely valuable. And we tend toward them. They're not all bad. 
But what we need to be sure of is that the tradition doesn't get in the way of my heart. And that my heart has a desire to say, Lord, I just want to be close to you. Some of you have been reading through scripture the same way for 25 years. And that can be a great thing. For others of you, you're going, I'm so tired of reading this way. Don't let the tradition ruin the heart. It's okay to follow a different reading plan. It's not okay to not read. We ought to be giving our lives to studying the word of God. We ought to be daily seeking God in our life. But make sure you're doing it in a way that is helping your heart be close to God. Not in a tradition that you have to do. One of the things that that COVID has caused is that it has caused a break in tradition. So for some, they came to church every Sunday morning. For some, it was every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. For some, it was every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night this morning. Uh, A man in our neighborhood that we know without walking as we were getting in the car. And we hadn't had a chance to see him in some time. And so my kids, hey, dad, dad, come here, come here, come say hi to him. And so I went out and I talked with him for a little bit. And then we got in the truck to come to the church. And as we're coming to the church, they started asking questions about why he was out walking and not going to church. And my kids don't understand why anyone would not be not going to church on Sunday morning. Everybody goes to church on Sunday morning, don't they, Dad? Everybody goes to church on Sunday night. Dad, don't, doesn't everybody do this? Because to them, it's all they know. So that tradition in their life is a good thing. But the tradition of going to church is not a tradition. It's to go to grow closer to God. And so for them, I want to make sure the heart is right in it But I want to examine this and look at it. And so in COVID, as traditions are changing, there were people who were very faithful to church. Who now, all of a sudden, the tradition has broken and their heart wasn't in it. And so now that they can come back to church, they don't go back to church. And look, I'm not judging any pastor because I, please, I understand how difficult it is to make decisions about whether to have services or not. But I know that there are churches who have been closed since March and will be closed at least the rest of this year. Oh, my heart is concerned for the people of those churches. Because the habit is broken now. And it it, it concerns me because if their heart wasn't in it, it, it's hard to get back their heart. And hearts tend to drift. Look, as we go through life, if we can get a hold of hearts, then the tradition doesn't matter because the heart will lead you there there are studies there are books there are all these things written that say hey why do young people grow up in church and when they get to an age of independence between 16 and 22 why do they leave the church now they can drive now they don't have to go now they're officially an adult at 18 now they go why is it they leave the church it's because the freedom breaks the tradition or the authoritarianism of the tradition And in that, there was no heart. So then there are books out there that say, oh, we'll teach them apologetics, they'll keep going to church. I don't believe that. I believe we should teach them apologetics, but I don't believe it will keep them going to church. Oh, well, if we make the environment more like the world, then they'll keep coming. I don't believe that. If we will teach them to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, and their heart is with God, then they 
will want to be with God regardless of their age. Let's not make tradition what's important. Make the heart what's important. And, and the rest will follow. It will take care of it. Now, please, I, I think there are traditions, there are standards, there are rules. There are things we put in our life that help our heart. And that's the purpose. But we keep the heart important. When someone refuses to evaluate their traditions, they are left to their traditions. One of the hardest things in this passage to me is when the Lord says in verse 14, let them alone. Again, we're looking at sayings of Christ that are hard sayings. When Christ looks at this group of people and he says, just leave them be. But, but Lord, they, they need to change. Lord says, I know, but they are blind leaders of the blind. They, are, they know the truth. They have rejected the truth. Leave them alone. In all of this, and I know it's hard to think through tradition and we can struggle with that. But let your heart's desire be, Lord, please don't ever leave me alone. Don't let it be that I become so blinded to my own tradition that you have to say to me, you are a blind leader of the blind, leave them be. And if you don't know, I am grateful, but I do know of people in good Bible-believing circles who I believe the Lord has had to come to a place to say, just leave them be. Because they will not break their traditions. And we have to be willing to say, Lord, I don't want hypocrisy here. I don't want this to be some type of action. I want this to be my heart. Now, that gets us through the first part of Matthew 15. The next part shows us another hard saying of the Lord that in, especially today, we would look at and we would go, oh, that's rough. Look, if you will, verse 21. Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon, it, it means so little to us. In Matthew chapter 11, the Lord makes this declaration. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethesda. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Now, the, the reason we look at that is the Lord makes this declaration about Tyre and Sidon is if I had done the works that I've done here, there, that bunch of wicked heathens, they would have repented already. Ouch. When the Lord compares you to another group of people and says, they're so bad, and you're acting worse than they are, and they're that evil. So the Lord's saying, look, Corsi, you know how bad Tyre and Sidon is. So when we come to this passage, we recognize Tyre and Sidon was a wicked place. The Lord had already made it clear, these were not great people. And behold, a woman of Cana came out of the same coast. We also know from Mark that she was what we would call the Syrophoenician woman. This was a Greek woman of Syrophoenicia, the nation. So this is important because these are natural enemies to Jews. So those from Canaan would have been historic enemies of the Jews, being a Syrophoenician woman in Tyre and Sidon. There was a wickedness to the culture, a wickedness to her environment, a paganness to her background. And she would have been from a group of people that the Jews would have looked on with some disdain because of the hatred the Canaanites had towards them. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, 
Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. The Lord just ignores her. Doesn't even answer. He just completely ignores this woman. Lord, thou son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. He answers her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meant to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which falleth from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. As the Lord begins to deal with this lady, let's get a little context first. It was very common in those days for Gentiles to be referred to by Jews as dogs. So it, it was just something that they would do. It was very disrespectful, and it was intended to be disrespectful. There were two words that are in the Greek that would be used for dogs. One word in the Greek would have to do with the dogs that would roam around, and these would have been almost like wild dogs, not like wolves that we think, but certainly dogs that would have rummaged for trash, and they would have gone around. These would have been the dogs much like back in 2 Kings when Jezebel dies and the dogs come and eat her body. This would have been the type of wild dog that was running around. We don't really have these in our country. If you go to other countries in the world, there are often dogs walking around everywhere and you see just wild dogs kind of off in the roadside. It is funny. I have been in countries where the dogs know how to use the crosswalk. So they, they do. They watch for the lights to change and they will go across the crosswalk. And you say, well, how do they learn that? Because well, the dumb ones are dead. They get run over. So the, the, the ones that are left alive are actually fairly smart. Uh, I was in one country, part of the country, and they would catch and eat a particular type of fish that could be poisonous. I said, well, how do you know whether to eat the fish or not? They said, oh, it's simple. You cook it one day, you feed it to the dog. If the dog dies, you don't eat it. Okay, well, what happens if the dog dies? Well, you just go grab another one, and you just tie it up. Because all the dogs tied up outside the house for is to bark if anybody comes near. So it's just, you just go get another wild dog. They're all over the place. So there's that word that's used for dogs. That's not the word that Jesus uses, though that was common for people to use. Jesus uses the word for a small dog, or what we would consider a pet dog. So any way you look at this, as Jesus refers to this woman as a dog, it is not a term of adoration but it is a less disrespectful term it has more to do with a pet dog like you and i would have in our house today so the lady comes to him and she says lord my daughter is dying she's got this devil that has controlled her and i only you can help and the lord says look right now my responsibility is to the nation of israel why would i deal with you as a dog Again, we know the love of God. We know his mercy. We know he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And we look at this and we go, how could the Lord, for this woman, how could the Lord, when he finally responds to this woman, say, I didn't come to help you, you dog. Now, a couple other things we need to be sure and understand. The emphasis is on the illustration, not the name calling. 
So as you, you look at it in context, the emphasis is not on calling her a dog. The emphasis is on the illustration that's being created from this event. And, and so as we see it unfold, the emphasis is on the illustration of, look, it is not the responsibility of the master of the house to take care of the dogs and to feed the dogs. He feeds the children first. So that's the, the illustration is what's important more so than the name calling. The illustration was both for the woman and the disciples. So this is given that each of these can learn from what's about to take place. Jesus saw this lady for who she was. The Jews viewed Gentiles in such a way that being in their presence can make someone unclean. Jesus had to challenge this thinking in the disciples' mind. So he calls her a dog so that they can see and recognize that this woman is seen as unclean because of being a Gentile in the world's view. But let's look at two things. We're going to look at what the illustration teaches us and then what the Syrophoenician woman herself teaches us. The illustration teaches us first that the woman had no right to ask. As she asks, he just ignores her. I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm not here for you. You don't have any right to ask me anything. That's, that's a hard statement. But it's especially hard when we realize none of us have any right to ask anything of God. We have the privilege of coming boldly before the throne of grace because of Christ. But apart from that, you, you have to understand, none of us has a standing to ask anything of God. That's easy to say, but the reality is we don't believe that. That's why the world will stand up and say, if there's a God in heaven, how can he allow bad things to happen? Wait, 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 wait. Why do you assume you have any right to ask anything of God? If he made you, you have no right to ask him of anything. There are certain things in raising kids you know, and you try to teach and you try to train. There are very few things that I will get indignant about with my children. But when they start talking ugly to their mama, there's some indignation that comes out very quick on my part. And, and, and forgive me, you may disagree with this, and that's okay. I mean to the level of, excuse me, who do you think you are that you talk to your mama that way? Do not speak to her like that. You have no right. She brought you into this world. She can make another one just like, no, just kidding. I mean, don't talk to her that way. You have no right. And I, I will get indignant with my kids about that. I can even tolerate more with them being ugly to me. But they don't get to talk to mama that way. Why do we think we have any right to talk to God that way? And the Lord says, look, I didn't come for you. I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it just helps us to be reminded of, look, I don't have any rights to demand anything of God. But it continues on. Jesus also helped her to understand he had no obligation to answer. You don't have a right to even ask. It's not my place to feed the dogs. 
there is no responsibility I have to take care of you. And yet she asks anyway. The Lord then looks at her and says, or she actually looks, and it's great, but Lord, even the dogs get to eat of the crumbs from the table. The illustration helps us to understand it doesn't take much from God to change everything. All she wants is crumbs. Our great big problems are crumbs. This week and some of the stuff happening out in California with churches, the county government got really ugly with one of the churches that actually won in court. And they're now taking away something that the church has leased for years and trying to make it hard on the church and put on this pressure on the church. And, and, and it's kind of this, well, what are they going to do now? It's just crumbs, man. Just stop. It's just crumbs. The Lord can take care of this. Why are we making God so small as to think some little bitty county official can dictate what God's going to do? Why do we and our lives make God so small that we think he can't fix this? Just crumbs. Think about this. If crumbs can do so much... What can the bread do? Jesus put, I'm the bread of life. If the crumbs from the table is all she needed, think about what the bread of life can do in our lives. When this lady comes to the Lord and the Lord calls her a dog, she doesn't respond to the dog comment. She says, Lord, I may be a little pet dog. Might be a little yappy chihuahua, but... Lord, you just give me a little crumbs is all I need. One of the great things about this lady is she comes so humbly. Come to Jesus humbly. She doesn't come arrogant. She doesn't get offended. She doesn't go, call me a dog. I'll show you. I'll get out of here. No. But Lord, just, just a little. All I need is just, just a little bit of your grace and it will fix this problem. So what do we learn from the woman herself? Here's a woman who comes to Jesus from Syrophoenicia, from Canaan, in Tyre and Sidon. She's an individual who has a daughter possessed of a devil. Now, we talked about this last week in my Sunday school class. We are naive to think that there is not demonic influence in the lives of people in our country today and in the lives of our children especially today. And so there is oppression, there is possession. And there is this pressure on this particular girl. And she has gone and exhausted her possibilities. As someone of that culture, she would have probably gone to what we would consider to be a witch doctor. She would have gone into the temple area to try and get those that worship other gods to try and deal with this young lady. She had exhausted every possible option. And there is one who is a Jew who I don't understand, who is the son of David. So she recognizes that and she comes to him because she has no other choice. There's a desperation to her. And, and when we come to a place where we have no other choice, then only God gets the glory. Today, please be reminded, our children face a spiritual warfare where only God can help. This poor girl 
was so taken and controlled, there was nothing mom could do. As a parent, how helpless is that? There's nothing you can do. That's a terrible feeling when you can't help. And this poor girl is so taken under this control. Mom goes, I've got no other choice. But I know that God can help. And she goes to Jesus. If you want God to help your children or your grandchildren, get desperate about asking. She pleads, she asks. She doesn't get any answer. She keeps on. The disciples said, this woman keeps crying. Lord, do something with her. He says, I didn't come to help you. And she goes, but, but you got to help me. Why should I help a dog? She will not give up. We come expecting that we deserve. And we ask of God, and if we don't get our answer, then we give up. She says, I can't get, I've got no other choice. He's the only one left who can help. You've got to heal my daughter. And oh, how we need some desperation. It is easy to watch TV at night, to see the news, and to go, oh, what's our country coming to? Are you desperately seeking God to help change our country? Are you desperately seeking God in the lives of your children, your grandchildren? This woman would not give up. The woman teaches that God shows mercy to those that are not supposed to receive it. She didn't deserve it. She wasn't supposed to receive it. Look, none of us are. And sometimes we look at situations, and they can even be situations of our own making. And God says, I can help if you will seek me. This woman teaches persevering faith to the disciples. The disciples said, will you just send her away? And he said, no, you guys need to learn. She keeps asking, and she's going to get her answer. Jesus' words to the Canaanite woman practically illustrate what it means to take up a cross and follow me. If this woman had been offended at the calling of dogs, she was not prepared for the shame of bearing her cross. We go through life, we are called to bear our cross. And along the way, are there going to be things we do not understand? Yes. But as long as we feel like we have a right to understand them, we're not going to go very far with our cross. Because the second we come to a place to where we don't understand anymore, we drop the cross and we go our own way. Look, that is Christianity in America today. I will follow God as long as it goes my way. This lady, it didn't go her way, but she was ready. We have no right to care how the Lord leads in our life. As long as we feel like, God, I will go where you lead as long as it's where I want you to lead. And as long as we feel like when something happens in my life, that, Lord, I don't understand this, therefore I'm not going to. Are there plenty of things we don't understand? Yes, yes, yes. But I don't have a right to care. I have a responsibility to obey. And so I carry my cross, and I go. And, Lord, I don't have any rights. I, I have died. And so whatever you bring into my life is for your glory, for my good, and bringing you glory. I'm just going to do it, and I'm not going to fight this. So this lady, you want to call me a dog? Lord, call me a dog. You have a right. You can call me whatever you want to. 
the Lord, please heal my child. And we go, you're going to do what? Nah, forget that. The audacity that we have. This lady teaches us that faith is more important than heritage. She's not a Jew. She doesn't deserve it. She didn't grow up in church. But she believed that God could. There are plenty of people who have grown up in Christian circles who have no power with God because their faith is built so much on what they have seen God do in others' lives or in their own family. And their faith is not in God. Their faith is not strong enough to say, God, you can change this. So I want to leave you with this thought. Is your faith great enough to change God? At first look, we see this from a point of view that says God was disrespectful to this lady. When really what we need to do is look at this and see it was not God being disrespectful to her. It was God trying to teach what faith really is. And that this lady, who could be looked down on by everyone else, had what mattered to God. She had faith. Disciples, they needed what she had. You and I, we go, man, I'm better than this lady. No, we need what she had. Is your faith enough that you can say, God, I don't care if you call me a dog. I don't care if you give me but crumbs. But God... There's this that I need, and God, only you can do this. And this is not a selfish want. This is not a selfish desire. This was clearly a God-intended purpose. Get rid of this demon. God, only you can do this, and I need you to do it. And her faith was so great that she changed God. Look, the Bible teaches us that faith changes things. There's, it, there's illustrations all throughout Scripture. But is your faith enough to change God? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help our faith to grow. Oh, Lord.